I, I think of words for us. I, I That's just the way that I'm wired. Some of us think very individually, and, and, and some of us think real collectively. And that's me. But when I've been praying over this uh, this message, and when I've been praying over a text, that's that's the text that I want to jump into because collectively that is our end. Together we will look even more like this in the end. Every tribe, every nation, every language, we will all be together. We'll be gathered under the name of Jesus and it'll be beautifully healing. But there's something personal too, right? Like before that end, everyone who's come before us has lived for that end, but then there has been an end to their end. And as I prayed about what this looks like for us, it it led me to more of an individual place. What does the end of our specific battles that we've been looking at over the last month, what does that look like for you specifically, for me specifically, as we've learned to define our battleground? What's it look like when when God brings closure there. And so I want to invite you, if you've got a a Bible or a device, turn to Mark 14. We're going to sit in the first nine verses for a little bit here. Because I I really believe that God has something to show us here. And and I'm going to read the first couple of verses. It starts by saying, Now the Passover and the festival of the unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him, but not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. But while he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. We're going to pause a second here because there's three things that I, I... I think Mark is trying to draw our attention to that if we were a a first century Jew, we would would recognize, but but we're not, right? We we live right here, right now. And so these are things that we don't want to miss because they're they're clues that he gives us. First is that it is the Passover. It's this big feast. We've talked about this before. This is the time when the Jewish people remembered that God had saved them from Egypt, that he had walked them through the desert and into the promised land. This is where death literally passed over every single home for this entire nation. And they would remember this. This was like, it's not like Christmas. Like Christmas has become a little bit cultural, right? Like This is a religious thing. This is like, if you are Jewish, you celebrate the Passover. This is at the core of the heritage of who you are. And you remember that death has passed you over, that God chose to do that for your people and for you. And you gather together to celebrate this. And it's a great feast of remembering what he's done. And, and at the same time, there, there's a lot of, like, reflecting there. That on our own, we should be dead. That on our own, we deserve death. But because God chose so, he passed over these people. It's important to remember that. And then this is in the home of Simon. Simon is, is known as Simon the leper. But if you know of lepers at this time, they don't have homes, and they cannot be, you can't come near them. Because you can get leprosy. Leprosy is like a giant catch-all for skin diseases. 
and, and they're contagious. And so lepers would be far away from everyone else in colonies. This, this disease was often so painful that they would not feel their, their fingers and their toes anymore. And animals would come and eat them or they would just fall off. It's a painful, horrible way to live and eventually die. And in fact, like if I were a leper and you were walking near, I would have to yell this disease as an identity. I would have to yell leper, leper, so you knew to stay away from me. But they're in the home of a man named Simon the leper. They're in the home reclining at a table of him. And they're reclining at the table of him because Matthew 26 tells us that Jesus had healed him of leprosy. Have you ever been there where you're healed and delivered of something, but you still take it as a last name? He's Simon the leper. He doesn't have leprosy, but he only knows life as a leper. And so he has a home. He has a community. He has relationship. He has the Messiah reclining at his table. And yet Simon is defined by disease he once had. He's defined by something that's in his past that God has already healed him of. Some of you can kind of just stop here and start thinking and praying, and you'd probably be good. He knew the power of Jesus because his life was completely different. And then there's this woman who walks in. Now, a lot of scholars assume that this woman is Mary of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And then get this, many, many scholars assume that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are the children of Simon the leper. And so there's Simon the leper whose home is filled again. It probably was being maintained by Mary, Martha, and Lazarus when he was out with leprosy, but he's healed and he's back in this home. And Jesus is in this home with these people and Simon's restored with his three children. So let's go on in, in the text. This woman, Mary, breaks the jar and poured the perfume on Jesus' head. And some who were present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. If you look at this same account in, in the gospel of Luke, we, we see a few other facts are added here. See, everybody at the table is shocked that Jesus would let this woman do it, because this woman is known as a, a sinner. This is, she's a sinful woman. That's a polite way of saying that this woman was a prostitute. And here's the thing about it. We can't tell by the text if this is like Simon the leper used to be a leper and still wears it as a name. We don't know if she is this woman who was a prostitute or it very much could be this woman who is actively now making her money as a prostitute. By the amount of indignation there, it's, it's clued in that it's probably this woman who the night before was a prostitute is now at the feet of Jesus weeping breaking a jar of perfume and dumping it on his head. But see, when this woman saw Jesus walk in, she saw that no one washed his hands and no one washed his feet. He was invited in as a guest and then he was treated as if he was unwanted. But she saw that it shouldn't be so. 
because that's Jesus, and she'd seen what he has done. And so she broke the jar. This isn't like she carefully unscrewed the jar so she could put the lid on tightly later. Broke the jar, it's useless. And poured a year's worth of wages on his head and on his feet. And Luke says that as her tears fell on his feet, she, she cleaned his feet with her hair. And a huge scene happened because that just doesn't happen. But he's the one who had given her hope. Now this is kind of, honestly, I think it's kind of strange for us because we're in a culture that, like if you come over to my, my house, I'll shake your hand, I'll greet you at the door, I'll take your coat, all those kind of things. But then I'll just kind of show you the bathroom. If you need to use the restroom, go ahead. If you want to wash your hands, like... That's great. I rarely will walk up to you and like, may I wash your hands? And I guarantee you I will never walk up to you and say, I'd I'd love to wash your feet. (laughs) I I just, I'm not from Mr. Deeds. Like, I don't don't like that. (laughs) But I've, I've, I've been a guest in cultures like this. Like, if you ever went with Nikki or I to Ethiopia, we'd walk into a home, any home. It, It might be a home like as big as this little area I'm standing in, and you walk in, and the first thing they're going to do is wash your hands. And they're going to find water, which is like gold, right? Because water means something. Not everybody has water. They're going to find a piece of soap, which is a luxury, and, and you, you're going to wash your hands, and you're going to get your hands wet and then rub the soap on, and they're just going to pour water on your hands, and it is an honor for them to wash your hands, and it's an honor for you to have your hands washed. It's like eating with somebody. You're, you're saying we belong together as you go through this ceremony of it, and he is, Jesus is in a culture much more like that one. When you walk in, it's an honor that, that your, your feet are dusty because you've walked. Let me, let me have someone wash your feet. And your hands are dirty. Let me have someone wash your hands so that you can feel clean as you come to this table. It's not just that, but you're also reclining like feet next to face. Everybody wants like hands and feet clean, right? Yet no one washes Jesus' hands and no one washes Jesus' feet. And he's invited in as a guest and then he's shamed. And so Simon, I imagine Simon, though he's no longer a leper, and the religious on one side of the room with washed hands and washed feet, and Jesus on the other with the marks of the day walking just dusty and dirty. And this woman interrupts everyone's life by filling the room with the scent of perfume and emotionally pouring out all that she has physically, emotionally, in every way, onto his head and onto his feet to make him smell as beautiful as she already sees him. And she's mocked. And she's ridiculed for this public display. And yet as she cries, she uses her hair as a towel to dry his feet. Can you picture this? Can you picture what this room looks like? And are you there anywhere? Are you in that room? I know some of us have been the very voices that mock. There's some in this room who've, we don't know Jesus. We don't know him yet. We're exploring, we're wondering what this is. Since when do you get into a group that's not a baseball game? You stand and sing. It doesn't make any sense. We're, We're trying to figure it all out. And when we see somebody have emotion or we see somebody passionately sing words that are on a PowerPoint projection, we're like, I don't get that. That makes no sense to me. 
I don't even know what these words mean. When we see somebody acting out of the ordinary, we go chuckle with friends. Anything that isn't in line with the way our culture announces that you're to act is variant and suspicious, and we're sure that it's fake, and we don't get Jesus, so we certainly don't understand when someone's life is transformed by an encounter with him. And so we see someone who says that they're completely different, and we don't have evidence of it yet, and so we say, I think that must be false. And so I'll mock it. I don't ever want to look different like that. If that's you in this room, I'm not, I'm not throwing shame on you. Instead, I want to give you an invitation. If you don't know what to do with Jesus, then I want to ask you as I'm talking. To, this, this sounds weird, but I guarantee you even know how to do it. Open up your heart and open up your mind and say, okay, Jesus, if you are real, then show me. And I want to invite you, if that's you in this room, there's absolutely no shame. You can come every day for the rest of your life. Every single Sunday, come in. You are welcome. I want you here. But if that's you, I want your life to be life to the full. And so this morning, as I'm talking, say, okay, Jesus, if you're real, then show me. That guy up there with the microphone says you speak, then speak. He says that his heart has changed, then, then change mine too. I want to encourage you to do that. Now there's another group in here where we have encountered Jesus, where he's even transformed our lives, but we still label ourselves by that past thing, right? We're still Simon the leper. We haven't been a leper forever, but we, we only know life as a leper. And so we still live that way, and we play really polite. We've been healed but there's a safe, cordial way to live, and we prefer that way. And if this is you, I know that you're walking where the waters are safe, and I know this because I've done this. It's like, you remember that movie Hitch, where he dances all awesome like Chris Diggs? And then they're like, no, don't do that anymore. And, and Will Smith says, like, keep it right here, right? And he gives him like, this tiny little lane where he's supposed to dance. You just keep it right here. And some of us walk our faith like that. Yeah. We're like, oh, okay, this is all I got. This is all the room I have. Oh, reality is inside we're like Gordon. We want to give it one of those spins and like, no, you can't. Keep it right here. Right? Faith is not lived right here. That's not faith. That is great if we're dancing. That is great if you're at a wedding. Like, keep it that way, white people. That is good. But faith is not lived like that. That's not faith. That's like really sanitary goofy and confusing to anybody else who encounters Jesus. Because anybody who first encounters Jesus says, my life is radically different and you're keeping it right here. How come? And there are some of us who think because we were something, we don't want to fall into that again. And so we're going to keep it safe and try not to draw attention on ourselves. Let me tell you, Jesus did not die so that you could just keep it tiny, keep it polite, keep it safe. Don't do that. He invites you into a life that's full. And nobody's ever left that dance dancing like that and been like, whoo, that was the best night of my life. <laughs> Nobody. You leave dancing like that and you're like, hey, I didn't step on anybody. That's progress. Jesus isn't really afraid of you stepping on people. But he also won't be mocked. 
And if, if you're living this safe, polite life, then you look at somebody who is pouring out their life for Christ, and because there's a difference, but Jesus is the same, you end up in your heart saying, ha, that's fake. Who would do that? That's foolish. No way am I going to do any of that kind of stuff. And then because you've got to have some separation, and we don't live real well thinking we're the bad guy, so we've got to make the other one a bad guy. But don't be Simon the leper who is no longer a leper. We have a different invitation here. You see, in this series on battleground, we've been talking about being in the middle of this battle. We talked a few weeks ago about this very real enemy and that our enemy is not human. That our enemy is not a people group or a part of town or anything like that. That our enemy is the spirits and principalities and the structures and systems bent against God's people being God's people. And that enemy is real, and that enemy is after us, collective, and that enemy is after you, individual. And we talked about being in the middle of that and how we try to do what God has for us. We try to obey Jesus, and sometimes the winds just beat us up and how we question where Jesus is, but the very place that Jesus is, is he wants to pass you by and show you his glory. You remember when we talked about this, where he wants to reveal in a deeper way who he is. And then if you were with us last week, we talked about our strategy is not that there's an A, B, and C that's going to fix your life. Or if you just do these three things and attend these two classes, none of that works. What you do is keep your eyes on him. Your strategy is tomorrow, wake up and keep your eyes on him and go where he leads. And then the next day, and then the next day, and then we'll gather. And really what this is, is we need to remember. This is us like remembering, hey, look how faithful our father is. Look in our lives, look throughout scripture. Now go, keep your eyes on him. But here we're finding ourselves wondering how it all ends. And I know for me this week, I found myself in a story. I had some good time away talking and listening for the voice of God. And as I tried to follow him and listen to him, I find that he, he leads me in real places. And he led me to this passage. And the reality is I was crying. Not a shocker. That's not the shocker. But I was crying for this prostitute because I am her. You guys, I'm her. I've settled for lesser gods. I've traded stuff out. Sometimes for somebody to like me as a pastor, I've been like, okay, God, just hold up a minute. I, I, need, I need a quick like hit. I need a fix right here. I need somebody's approval, or I'm scared that this isn't going to work out. I've tried to win at life the way that culture offers, and culture does not send us into the arms of Jesus. I've worked for the approval of people, I found myself among a bunch of pastors this week realizing how often I've gathered with them and wished they would notice me. And then remembering that oftentimes I'm in this room wanting your approval just as much. I've tried to be a good enough husband and dad and pastor and friend and I can't win at the game that life asks me to play. And the interesting thing is when I realize and remember I can't win at this game, it causes me to run to Jesus because he doesn't ever ask me to play. He doesn't. 
He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. And I look out at the people who call ourselves Christians. We are the most tired, burdened folk. And somehow the church in, in our culture has decided to say that what is biblical, what is God-honoring is for you to take on all the weight of the world and look like it. And the less you sleep and the more coffee you drink is the more Jesus-like you are. That's, that's just not true. Like sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is go to bed. Go to sleep, guys. Go to sleep. Learn to Sabbath. Let him spin the world. You're really not doing a good job of it. And it brings us to him. And every time we go crash into him, we give him all that we have. And it's to be valuable. And it's this valuable thing that feels kind of worthless. Real honest, most often my life feels like I have already broke the jar. Oh, good night. I can't get it back. I poured out my life. And it was meant to smell good, and people have accused it of being worthless. You ever been there? I feel like I'm doing the exact thing God has asked me to do, and I'm trying to pour out my life on Jesus because that's what I believe Scripture says. And then somebody on the outside looks at it and says, that's dumb. Why are you helping people in Ethiopia? People in Kenya need you. I've heard so many times, why are you helping in Ethiopia? People in the U.S. need you. And, like, I promise you I care about the United States. And, and then we start working in a, in a church, and people are like, why are you working in that city? The people in the suburbs need you. And why are you working in this intentionally multi-ethnic group? That doesn't make any sense. That seems worthless. Do something easier. Do something that has lots of people and is attractive and that you can look at and say, we're growing, so we're doing the will of God. And I feel like so often I my jar is already broken. I've already broke it because I committed to pouring out my life on Jesus. And so often I do the sin of listening to the voice of the people who are saying, Matt, your life is worthless. Do something different. And I don't think I'm alone in this room on this one. You do the very thing that God has asked you to do. You're pouring out your life best you can. You're still you're still in the act of being whoever you were, trying to not be that any longer, but you're pouring out your life on Jesus best you can because you believe that he's beautiful and you're trying to pour it out on him and people look at you and say, foolishness. And if that's you, like that's me, I want you to know that the last voice is not the voice of the mocker. The last voice is not the voice telling you that your life should have been spent another way or for another people or you should have looked out for yourself or whatever it is. The last voice is not theirs. The last voice doesn't shame you or guilt you. No. In the end, the last voice sounds like this. If you need to close your eyes, this is for you. Leave her alone, says Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor will always, you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. That's not mockery. That's, that's him being pleased. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, including in old Louisville thousands of years later, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Some of you need this. 
If you find yourself pouring out your life for Jesus, the best that you can, I want you to hear these words. Jesus defends you. Don't attack her. Don't attack him. What are you doing? We see in scripture that we are hidden behind Jesus. Jesus is big. I don't know if you know this. You fit back there. We all do. And like a scared kid who goes and grabs a leg of their father, we hide behind Jesus, and he's big enough for us. And he's like, stop it, to all those voices of mockery. He'll silent the critics, and his voice alone matters. And there's an act that we need to learn here. This is an act of tuning out other voices, of no longer listening to other voices. This might mean changing some patterns. This might mean stopping social media for a while. It might mean calling somebody and lovingly saying, hey, you know what? I'm going to call you in a month, but I I can't do this right now. You matter, but you don't matter above my soul. And so we're going to take a break here. And we're going to come back to this, but I need to remember who I am. It's not just that he defends you. But the pouring out of your life is a beautiful thing. You empty out your life. You empty out your tears. The tears are all out. The perfume is empty. The hair is messy from living for Jesus. And we feel vulnerable and terrified. And Jesus sees us and says, that's beautiful. That's exactly what I called you to do. You know, I was talking to a friend about this yesterday and realizing that pretty much every act of obedience that Jesus calls us to is us emptying ourselves onto him. And then whoever thinks that smells good and whoever thinks that's stupid, that's his call. And I don't like that. I want it to be like I pour out my life and everyone's like, good job, Matt. It doesn't work like that. That's why I learned to listen to him who says, well done, son. That's beautiful, son. That's what I asked for. And Jesus sees that you have done all that you can. We have limits, right? He set them. You're made in his image. He set limits on you and said, hey, take a break. Take a Sabbath. Rest. Let me spin this thing. And he looks out at us and says, hey, You've done what you can. You've been faithful with what you have been given. She, she didn't feed people with this year's wage because Jesus didn't ask her to. But she poured out all that she had on him, and he saw that as worthwhile, beautiful, and worth telling everyone for all time. Paul says it this way, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. I once was at a place where I'm not ashamed, looked like me not feeling courageous enough to wear a Christian t-shirt. And I was like, I'm not ashamed. I put the Christian t-shirt on and I'm not there anymore. I wear a t-shirt. I'll carry a Bible. That, that, that's not really what this is about. 
This verse is about those moments when you've been pouring out your life and you hear voices mocking. This verse is about when you wonder if it's worth it all. And if you're like me, you've been there. And if you're like Paul, you've been there. Paul's the one who told the Corinthians that he came in weakness, fear, and trembling. He knew the message of the cross was foolishness to some and a stumbling block to others. But he remembered that this message was the power of God that brings salvation to everyone based on their faith, just as it's written. And so then he quotes Habakkuk 2.4. The other part of that verse is that the enemy is puffed up. And we get scared because an enemy is puffed up, but let's be honest, so are peacocks. So are high school boys, and so are insecure leaders. The enemy is nothing to fear. The enemy never has a last voice. Your father does. So faith will be our guide. And in the end, Jesus sees it all. And his life is a shining example within you of his kingdom come and his will be done. And so if your jar is broken, may I tell you that is beautiful and well done. And if you have that preserved on a high shelf because you're staying in your lane, then go break some rules and shatter a jar on the feet of Jesus. Nothing is more worth your life than our faithful God. And I pray with you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for your patience with us. I thank you that you know and love and adore us. And I thank you that in these moments where the struggle is so, so real and we feel like we're drowning and panicking, and we don't know if we'll ever come up for air. I thank you that you see us in those moments and that you say, my child is beautiful. My child has done what I ask. For those hearts that need to hear that, don't let them hear my voice. Let them hear yours right now. Let them hear well done. For those of us who are living in fear and trembling, let us be unashamed. For those of us who are exploring, if you're even who you said you are, may we leap inside and may may we cry out that you are God. Thanks that through all this, you count us worthy. Thanks that you love. Precious name.